Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, dedicated to exploring the art and culture of Latter-day Saints through interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars. The podcast is presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. For this episode, I am delighted to have Anne-Marie Oborn, whose still life's landscapes, figurative and religious paintings, have gained national attention, gaining her the status of a signature member of the Oil Painters of America. Locally, she is a founding member of the Inspirational Art Association and the Plain Air Painters of Utah. Anne-Marie is also a prolific illustrator for dozens of books and publications, including The Enzyme, Liahona, His Gift, a collaboration with Richard Paul Evans, and instructional materials that are used by artists. Anne-Marie Oborn has created an artwork that will appear in the Certain Women exhibition, which is our excuse for being able to sit down and talk with you. Welcome, Anne-Marie Oborn. It is such an honor to be with you. I am so flattered. Beyond. <laughs> My head will not get out that door. <laughs> well, the feeling, the feeling is mutual. Um, okay, I've got a question out of the gate that I wanted to start with, which is I was I was looking through your website, which you know artists artists sh- shouldn't uh, um, um, aren't always required to be writers. But it strikes me when I was reading your art statement that you you said something quite beautifully that um, I felt for a long time, and uh, it, it, you had said that that painting is more than facts; that it has to have more than just the facts, and I wanted to know. Um, I wanted to know more about your thoughts on that. Well, um, those feelings and those thoughts probably probably were instigated by my Russian teacher Sergei Bongart, and he said, "If a painting doesn't touch your soul or inspire you emotionally, then it's more like a police report." And less like poetry. And so he talked about painting as being kind of like poetry. Hmm. And so I think that's something all of us strive for. And once in a while, we get it right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just life. You know, it's like Pavarotti. Should we not sing because we don't have his voice? Yes, we should still sing. (laughs) Now, Sergei Bongart was was quite famous. He was... I think born in Ukraine, came to the United States, established himself in Los Angeles, and had this this uh, studio in Idaho that was a kind of artist retreat where he yeah. he gathered a coterie of like-minded artists around him. Mm-hmm. Um, what was? How did you get to be part of his circle? Well, um, an artist who traveled from mall to mall and did pastels is the one that told me about him. But it was after we hired him to do a three-day workshop because there was something I saw in his work (laughs) and color just hit me in the face. I'd never thought about color being such a beautiful thing until I saw something in his work. And I says, you know something about color. Where did you learn that? And he says, well, just up here in Idaho, Sergey Bongart. And... uh, we talked him into doing a three-day workshop. And by the way, I talked my friends into creating this workshop. And Nancy Crookston was one of those people. Hmm. And she is a master signature painter. Hmm. So those little beginnings kind of bloomed for hmm. some of us. Where were you in your art development when you when when this was happening? Obviously you're associating with other artists at this time. Um 
and, and, and maybe a better place to start mm-hmm. is to ask, um, when did you get the art bug? When did you start mm-hmm. studying and directing your energy towards that? Okay, well, first of all, you know, my mom doodled in church, and so when I became disruptive, that was what she did to help us do that. <laughs> One time she had to take me out in the foyer, and while I was out there, a lady in a wheelchair was so darling, she got a pencil and paper and just said, come here. So I went over there, and I think I was about four or five, and she did a structure of a house, and all of a sudden she made it three-dimensional. Hmm. And it just was wonderful. That's interesting. So that yeah. ki- that that was that was kind of the beginning. It just opened your mind to yeah. possibilities that you hadn't considered before. And you were four yeah. or five. I can hardly remember the things that happened to me at four or five. The fact that yeah. you remember that—that's interesting. Um, Where were you living? Where did you grow up? Idaho, Pocatello, Idaho. Pocatello, Idaho. So not yeah. the art center of the world. No. In fact, I think the most artistic thing, gathering of paintings that I saw was the State Fair. Hmm. And uh, so that was, that was the beginning. My dad, being a musician, had a friend who was a bass player, but he was an artist. Hmm. And so he gave me my first little art book. And then a lady, Mrs. Six, taught me uh, three lessons because I was a piano quitter. All my sisters played piano. <laughs> And a lot uh, of us relate to that. <laughs> I would be a better artist if I hadn't quit because I think it develops your brain and hmm. capabilities. But anyway, so I was the quitter. And uh, Did your parents and inc- your father was a musician and he was quite, yes. he was an employed musician. I mean, he was the kind that, that, that did it for a full-time living. What did he do? Actually, he, he was a, an insurance adjuster and did... His band, he had his own band, and they would just go all around because then they didn't have recordings. They had live music everywhere. And um, later in his life, he actually played in the Tommy Dorsey James, Harry James Band, not at their zenith, but after when they traveled all over Hmm. the world. And so when I grew up, I was used to hearing beautiful, harmonious um, sounds, and I think that may have influenced my desire and joy in seeing color hmm. and the way the Russian painters um, help us enjoy color. Was there a moment in your life when you thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an artist. I and mean, at what point did that happen? Well, uh, as I grew up, I always loved it. It was the thing. Um, my parents went through a divorce, and there were some stressful times, and that was which the was one somewhat thing. unusual for th- for that time, right? It was divorce right. wasn't, and there was a stigma associated with it. I guess I felt that. Yeah, but this was kind of a calming, evening out huh. thing that I would do, and um, it brought a lot of peace to me. So I always felt that. But then, growing up in the culture that we do. My first goal was be a good mother, so I didn't know how to cook, I didn't know how to sew, I only knew how to make hamburgers and mush when I got married. (laughs) My husband has survived, (laughs) (laughs) and he's also an artist, but anyway, he, um, as I, I was growing up, I just didn't think art was anything you should pursue, so I went into consumer economics, which is better called home ec, Hmm. and, um... 
I graduated uh, with an education degree in home ec hmm. and did my uh, student teaching. And then my husband was in the Army, and I went to Indianapolis, Indiana, and I had one little boy, Ryan, my oldest. And I he came home one day, and I said, I'm just not happy. I just, I ca- I just have to paint. And so he said, okay. That's just fine. Please paint (laughs) anything to make me happy, you know. So I started doing that, and I still have that first painting. What was it? It was uh, Still Life, and you would so chuckle because whenever I've taught a class, I've gotten that out. I've gotten out my first portrait, and it's devoid of color. Hmm. So when I saw that color, it was like color TV from black and white. Living in a place where between the doodling in church and this first piece, was there any formal training? No, I I think in ninth grade I had um, a class, but I was more interested in the boys than I was in art, so it wasn't very productive. But you did marry an artist. Was he an artist when you married him? No, we both met in band. We graduated from the same high school. And we dated in high school. He left on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I dated other people, but um, when he came home, we became engaged. And You didn't dear Jane him? No. (laughs) He dear Jane me. Oh, that scoundrel. Oh, I know. (laughs) And I had totally felt the confirmation of, yeah, he's the right person. And he came home and did that. So I left to go to BYU. But I didn't take art. I took chemistry and... um, I just did not see art as a vocation or anything. So when, it sounds like that first attempt that you made was more of something that you were doing for emotional well-being rather than seeking a career. Yes. When did it change from emotional well-being to career? Is there... I don't know that it ever has. That's a good, that's a good point because maybe I was, I was bringing up a false dichotomy, yeah. right? The idea that, it's, that, it, that it would change. But when... You know, I, I, you, I grew up in Bountiful, and mm-hmm. I grew up with your son, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm surprised. This is, the, this is really the first time that I, I get to sit down and talk with you about art, because mm-hmm. I grew up I grew up with, uh, with Rich and his wife, uh, Melinda. But um, as I was preparing for this, this interview, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking through your, your work, and there's a question that kept coming up for me, which was, um, I liked growing up in Bountiful. I, uh, it was a great place to be. For an artist, it doesn't seem like a great, a great place to be. It seems like, um, it seems like there are a lot better choices for commercial opportunities as as an artist as compared than to Pocatello. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wonderful opportunity. So yeah, and 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 it makes me and but you are one of the few artists who I have known um, since I was a child that was local that was making a career out of it. And and um and and maybe that's just me from the outside looking in, but I don't think so because I mean the the one of the the uh, you were you are clearly one of the pillars of the community. You founded um, the Plain Air uh, Artists of Utah. You were one of the founders of the Inspirational Art Association, and and I think that uh, uh, um it's a question of how does someone um in an environment where there really isn't a huge gallery environment mm-hmm. and there isn't a people who 
collect originals in the same way that maybe you would in in another in another environment. How did you how did you make it work? And it's not just you; it's your husband too. The two of you doing it together. Well, we wanted to go on vacation, and so we called that our vacation money. And it, my mother was a good example. She made a big effort to be home with us, and mm. so that was something she instilled to be home with your children. And so I would stay and paint into the middle of the night, you know, four or five in the morning, and and paint. And then uh, take a nap with the kids uh, when they t- went down for a nap. Hmm. And so that's kind of how I did it. And then my uh, last one, Rochelle, I would put in a backpack. <laughs> and Diane Turner teases me about this. Um, she goes, yeah, you'd come out and paint, and you'd have Rochelle in your backpack. And when, when she, she was big enough, then she'd be playing in the dirt on the side of the road. <laughs> And my other sin is she went to too many museums, probably. (laughs) Uh, But there's worse things that kids have gone through. But it was something I could do and be at home. And nowadays they work on computers and they have jobs that way. But back when I was raising my children, there weren't very many jobs you could do in your home. Well, and nowadays, too, you have a lot of outlets for showing your work. You have Instagram, you have Facebook, you have websites that you can put up. What were you doing to get the word out that you were making this art? How were you? I mean, was My friends, I guess. And was there a long time between you making art and you selling art? Because I think there's often... You talk about the first work that you did that looks almost monochromatic compared to the color that you're doing now. Mm-hmm. How long until you sold a work? Well, my first sale was in Idaho. Um, how I old did, were you? How I old did, were you? I was 20, let's see, I was married at 21, 23. I had Ryan <laughs> mm-hmm. and I had my first, uh, I was probably 23 and it was a trade. She would pay for the materials, and I would paint a painting of, of my neighbor. And that's that was the first sale, <laughs> even though it was just And you're just using materials. air quotes, sale. <laughs> that I made. And then it was a, a close friend who I am still in contact with. She bought my second painting. It was she and her husband, and they had graduated from college, and this was her gift to her husband. Hmm. And I saw the painting, and I just said, "Oh, please, please take it down." I could not. <laughs> I could not convince her to do that. And so I had a designer. We went up and redid her home, completely redesigned her home. Yeah. And I told the designer, "Just make sure that painting's behind her door yeah. in her bedroom, so no one can see it." And so she did. She made sure it was there. You know, most most uh, artists are. Uh, you maybe you'll have comfort in hearing that most artists are uh, um, totally unable to control the fate of of what happens with their work in the end. There's this story about um, Beardsley, the the English illustrator um, who was working in the Art Nouveau period, who before he died asked his best friend to destroy a whole body of work that he didn't want to be remembered for, and his friend realized there was so much money in selling them that he kept them, and they became what he was most famous for in the end. So, so I guess you know you can <laughs> you can only have so much control, but I think that it's it's also very rare for an artist to be placing their first works. Usually there's a closet full, I would think, of a I lot for a lot of people. Uh, I have a small closet compared to most artists I've seen. Yeah. 
and this kind of, this sounds, I don't know, strange, but I think that I was given a lot of talent, mm-hmm. but I have not been very disciplined, and and yet because of what happened in my family, I have always said, sacrifice the art, the family's first. What do you mean because of what happened in your family? Oh, they got divorced and... Your parents? Yeah. And and I just, that was something I didn't want to have happen in my family. And I had this passion for art, but I never wanted to feel like it took first place. So you were kind of restraining the bohemian, in, bohemian yes. instincts. And you were there was a practical Every streak day, that ran all the way through. Even today. <laughs> well, I... You know, you you uh, you do down. You're downplaying a little bit um, the ambitiousness with which um, you pursued your art. I, I mean, I think when I was looking at your biography, and this is something I wasn't aware of. Once again, when you're too familiar with with somebody in their work, sometimes you you can you can make assumptions. And I just assumed because I know that you had a, an interest in Russian art that it corresponded to the to the kind of Russian art that was coming in. Um, from Vern Swanson and the Springville Museum of mm-hmm. Art. But your interest predates that with Sergei um, Bongart, Bongart. I always oh, want to yeah. say, yeah, and, it and so it comes yeah. from a different strain. Vern. And I <laughs> and I guess the thing that made, that for me was the, the false association, but there is a relationship between it, is the use of color. Um, there's a, we come from... And as as Utah plain air painters, which I know is only one of the, the 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 categories that you paint in, it comes from a very French school, which is much more about naturalism. Mm-hmm. As I was combing through Sergei Bongart's work, and even the things he said, there was one thing he said. I don't want to get this wrong. He said, um, uh, he said, color uh, color first, then the subject. Co- color first, subject last. And and I thought, you know, that is such, within our culture, that is such a revolutionary idea. Because we are often so subject-concerned, right? Mm-hmm. Your art is full of color. Did that set you apart in the, in the beginning? Is that something that you look back and you think, you know, maybe... That that's that that was something that that's that, did that come from Sergey or was it? Absolutely, um, there was no color in my work. Now let's see, Nancy Lund, and um, I'm trying and I'm trying to think of her good friend Forsberg, Norma Forsberg. Mm-hmm. Both attended Sergey's classes up there. That's mm. where I met them before we moved here. Actually. Interesting, and so. When I couldn't paint with some Sergei students anymore after I moved down here, I was a little lonely. And it is color first. I guess that is the thing that I love the most is the color. And he said, learn to draw somewhere else. Uh, but for me, if what I have to teach you is color. You know, learn all these other principles everywhere else. So this is a constant within the the history of art of these two warring. They they in in Renaissance times they would use the word disegno versus colore, oh, and yeah. and in the 19th century it was 
it was Aang and the academics versus Delacroix and and Corbet and Vincent Van Gogh and those guys were all color people, and there was just this idea of if you were into color, you're undisciplined. That was the the criticism, and if you're into and and then the the criticism on the other side was if you're into disegno or line, then you are dispassionate and unoriginal and unoriginal. <laughs> Oh, right? okay. Because so, your your oh. copyist was was the criticism. Well, one of the great joys is seeing both of them. Well, you went to you sought out. Uh, I mean, you're talking about um, graduating with a degree in 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 uh, in domestic economics. consumer economics, and then you go study chemistry, and but you you also go to Russia to study. When did that happen? Um, and what did and what were you times. seeking? How many different times? I'm sorry, I spoke I over heard you. I heard couple of my friends were going and I said oh please let me be the third wheel so I went and and where did you go St. Petersburg so you went to the academy mm-hmm. and uh, there were some people uh, teaching classes from um, the academy Igor Vadimovich Petrov was one of my teachers big name and V took you probably have seen his... Oh, yeah, both very closely mm-hmm. associated with the Repin Academy. Mm-hmm. So they were both teaching there. Wow. And I was lucky enough to to learn from wonderful teachers. But and they were very... They were very harsh and disciplined, and it's like, you know, you don't even get into color for so long. And well, and they inher- they were the inheritors of the Academy. Of There was that old French model of... Oil paint only after it's it's that yeah. idea that Ang once said, which was, it took me twenty years to learn how to draw and one day to learn how to paint. It's that it's which is which is such an extreme, and he meant it as this ridiculously extreme statement. But I believe it. But the Russians have so much color in what they're doing, and so you know that almost in a way there's there's a lot of talk about that. But they also were so expressive with their. Color and light. What did they, you pick up there? They advanced so much more than the rest of the world in their arts, all the arts. Hmm. Uh, one of my feelings about that is because religion was taken away from them, hmm. this was one way I think God and they communicated was hmm. through their arts. And painting was one of the ways that they did that, I, f- I feel. Hmm. I feel it when I see their work. And such emotion that you you see in the Russian artwork, and so I get a sense that it was quite intensive. The your study while you were there, what did you walk away having that you didn't have before you were there? Of course, how much I didn't know, and how hard that the Russian students study to achieve what they do, and like you say. Yes, in a way, you can learn color in one day. Hmm. But I didn't have anything, really, other than just my desire to draw and paint. And I I looked at books and things like that. Um, so, so they brought that and the importance of putting a little bit of soul in, in your paintings. It should mean something. Hmm. And just like we're taught, I think it was... President Packer that said, with with all the art, just know that you can add to the joy in people's lives hmm. with it. Hmm. And I'm sure that you saw President Eyring's show. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I just cried when I looked at that. 
And I thought, with little postcards, look at all the joy that he's spread all over the world. And I thought, oh, he's probably a pretty good painter. But when I saw his work, I was truly humbled. Hmm. Very masterful. Hmm. So I think putting a little soul, being able, able to share that. I mean, you probably saw that I've painted portraits of soldiers that died in Iraq. Yes, and I was going to ask you about this. So there are four artists who've gotten together, and um, I want to get the name of a right, which you can... You Keziah can pro- Hancock. Keziah Hancock, and it's called the Project Compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us about Joanne, Project Compassion. So there are four artists involved uh, in it. Joanne Musser, and um, one of them has passed away. Okay. And just because I'm under pressure, I guess, I don't know, I can't think of his name right now, but... Dear That's right. Soul. It'll come to you. It'll come to you. Anyway. When, it, when it mentions, just, just say it. But tell us, tell us what the project is and how it started. Okay, Keziah saw me painting at the State Fair. I was like the featured artist. And um, she just tapped me on the shoulder and she said, do you think you'd ever consider? And I said, I know what you're going to say. You were the one that painted the portrait of the first man that died in Utah. In, in, in the, the Iraq, in the Iraq war. war? I said, I wanted to do that. I couldn't get a hold of them. And I, I tried to even uh, get a hold of her. So I knew everything she was going to say. I had never met her, and that's how she commandeered me into doing that. But I was thinking at that time, okay, I'm doing such a favor for everybody. Um, this is a good deed that I'm doing. But as all things like that, come about you find that you're the one rewarded and uh, we had we were under pressure doing it at a certain amount of time trying to get it to the family so it helped so, me force myself to work fast. so what you do is you paint a portrait of the fallen soldier give it to their family for free okay and and it's something that you know you often hear about the the people who have to come and deliver the news that someone's passed away. And I assume that that it's a very sensitive moment when you are probably months after the fact, Mm -hmm. again, having a conversation about the passing away. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are probably also other concerns that people have about, and that you have, maybe less the the people about, does it really look like him or her? Does it, are, are these, how do you... How do you approach this when you do it? Are you given a photograph? Does the family come to you? How does it work? Uh, Kaziah um, was able to get President or uh, Senator Hatch uh, involved in this, and so they had to request from us. We didn't approach them. The family would. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they we knew they wanted it because they were the ones that sent in a. So it's invitation. not a surprise. Okay. Sometimes okay. it was. Some people would. Uh, would do it as a third party requesting it for the family? Yeah, some every once in a while they would do that. Huh. And uh but it was very emotional. Uh many times they would call me afterwards. I still get cards occasionally hmm. from people. I did about two hundred and twenty seven portraits. Oh my heavens. That is much more than I would have thought. Well, and also if they I said, any picture, and if they had the children in it, I thought, oh, those children need to be in it. Okay, that's going to take me longer, but I just want that child to know somebody cared about what their parent went through. Is there... So I would okay, so <laughs> sometimes I, include a lot of them. <laughs> so I hesitate to ask this because I don't want to take away from the specialness of it. 
But I do want to know if this is a this is a very specific kind of painting for a very specific purpose. Is there a formula that you found over time that made these images work better than other images? Over time, did you find out, okay, this is this is the best way to approach this subject? Uh, no, I, I, I haven't had a formula. In fact, my husband suggested you need to put this color background on there and just put this face on there, and that'll get it done. Yeah. <laughs> because he's not worked in portraits, and I said no. It's everything has to fit, and it won't fit if there's a formula. I, I never have had a formula, but I'll bet people look at it and say, oh, this might be a formula, hmm. in, s- in some way, looking at what she does, but. I would just take their, they'd give me sometimes two or three photographs, let me pick which one. Hmm. So I didn't come up with a a formula that made it quicker, but are you saying... I guess what I'm asking in part is that, um, you know, there's this story that I I read about an observation of John Singer Sargent, Mm -hmm. that he would have somebody come for three or more sittings. And he would do the three sittings, and each time he would scrape away the paint at the end of the day and start over. And it was never quite explained why he did that, but I get the sense that it it took that preparatory foundation mentally and, uh, to get to the point where he was then ready to do it. And then you hear about somebody okay. like Aang, for example, who... Mm-hmm who uh, he would have to do these very quick portraits often in an afternoon in pencil and he would schedule an hour before lunch and and he would have lunch with them because he'd want to catch them in an informal pose he'd want to see what their personality was like while they were eating lunch and then he would do another hour after here you're working from photographs and you have to do 200 and how many 27. And and I, I kind of imagine that, that, you know, on some level, there's just the work of getting them done, right? You got to get them done. And uh, some artists don't do that amount of work in 10 years, right? <laughs> you know, it, in addition to all of their other it pieces. It was over a period of about six to eight years. Now I see what you're saying. Yes, um, I would ask them and talk to them to try to get to know this person. Yeah. So that I just didn't see them uh, as two-dimensional from a yeah. photograph. Yeah, formula was the wrong word because it makes it sound like I was talking about the end product. Formula. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So you you talk to them about the personality, mm-hmm. kind of interview them a little bit. Uh, yes, uh, I wished I could have done studies like you suggest. Yeah. That these other artists did. that would be ideal to do some sketches beforehand, and get to know them because they're going to talk. They're going to, you know, it's kind of like you sit down to a hairdresser. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and they talk, and you get to know them as a person. So I did strive always to find out as much about them as possible. I did paint one portrait, however. The man had not died. Hmm. And they asked me to paint it. And he happened to be a person who suffered from burns hmm. uh, in his serving his country. And she, the wife sent me two pictures. She says, I don't care which one you paint. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, you know. And so she sent me before and after, and I had... So you had to choose whether you were going to do him before or after his I burns? wanted her to choose. Ooh. So what did you choose? Well, I said, this is what he's going to look at, uh, like hmm. when his life ends. He'll look more like this, but this person that he's become because of this experience is also so important. And so he had a 
a T-shirt. And so it's something about affliction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some words on his T-shirt said something about affliction. And I, so I painted a portrait of what he looked like now mm. in a smaller version on his T-shirt mm. that, that he had. Wow. And she was, she was happy with that. And when she talked about him, he had such a good attitude that she herself knew that he wouldn't have cared which portrait was painted of him. Hmm. And he says, yeah, uh, (laughs) people stared at him and that and goes, yeah, it's just hard. They, they're all, I get so much attention, you know, I feel like a Hollywood star. (laughs) Wow. And he just had such a good attitude. Wow. Wow. So he's the only one I painted that hadn't, hadn't passed. So you were, you were going to be participating in this certain women art show that opens up in a, in, in a, in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And, um, I want to, I want to talk about the piece you're making for that. I haven't seen it. I brought it actually. You did? So, so, uh, (laughs) we'll, we'll look at it after, after, but tell me, um, your, they, they had a very specific ask for this. Can you tell me about creating what this work is and the the process for making it? And I guess Mm -hmm. what I'm asking for here instead of using the word formula, I'm going to be more specific. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about uh, the formulation of the idea itself, like when they approached you, mm-hmm. and then just the soup to nuts of making it, the, the idea of, you know, from beginning to end, what that was. Um, it was daunting. Certain women, you know, I went and read the scriptures about what it said. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the color part of me or the bohemian part in me is I I have a hard time being so prim and proper at, in situations when it's demanded. <laughs> <laughs> and so I rehearsed all these ideas in my mind and yet my heroes are just around me, my neighbors and uh, people close to me. And so this painting is actually of a certain trend of mine. She doesn't know that I've painted it, but Hmm. I've admired her and things that she's done throughout her life. In fact, you know who she is. Hmm. So it'll be kind of fun for you to to see it. But I didn't want her to be obligated in purchasing it or whatever. It just came from, I just want to paint this. Hmm. Because when I, certain women painting i just that was too daunting when you are making a work especially a, something that represents an actual person because mm-hmm. you do still life you do plain air and you do figurative work mm-hmm. um how do you usually start a work do you do a sketch first do you go right to the canvas what do you do i usually don't do a lot of preliminary sketches. I know I would be a better artist I f- if I would do that. Oh, I'm not here to make you feel guilty yeah. at all. I'm just interested, almost like an yeah. anthropologist. As I to, don't feel as to guilty anymore. Good. I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any expectations. I'm yes. just interested in how you do it. I do. I make myself feel guilty, though. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, how how do I go about it when yeah. when someone says, "Well, okay, this is the theme," and I can't do it that way. Right. I just have to paint something I want to paint, and if it fits what they want for a show, then it'll be in the show. And if it's not, it won't be, and I won't be in the show. (laughs) Do you go straight to oils on your canvas? Yeah. 
I, and I paint with my brush. But if it's more involved and there's more figures and it's larger, then I have to do preliminary sketch uh, and and things like that. And but that it, do you do on paper with a with pencil or no, how do you do it? Uh, on the canvas. Right that, on the canvas. The sketch would be the canvas, and it might be a small one, but I usually just start out painting. But if it's like I said, anything bigger, I have to. I have to do preliminary. Do sketch. you think in terms of color when you're doing it? Um, so do you, do you? When I'm uh, looking it, at it, I have to think in terms of the color. I think of uh, degrees of breakup of light and dark values, a pattern that's uh, going to be pleasing. Yeah. And um, something someone said about a lot of my work that I didn't realize is a circular composition is usually what I end up with, and that's to keep your eyes in there, So I guess. <laughs> often when people are painting in oil, one of the first things they do is they set out their palette and the colors they're going to work with mm -hmm. before they even put something up. When you do, set, is that what you do as well? You're, you're, you set out your colors? Well, or I do they come the together? You do? And then I always, these wasted, because I didn't use them, but of course if I'm looking at a more monochromatic, mm -hmm. of course I don't put as many brilliant colors out. And one of the things Sergei did, mm -hmm. he didn't make me work in black and white, which he, a lot of the Russian teachers would do, but he, after he says, you, you're just all over the place with your color, and so you put scrambled eggs on her face, you know? <laughs> 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 that was the color he was describing, so of course, man says something like that, I never do it again, but um, he, we, he said, just use um, ultramarine blue, cad red, yellow ochre, black and white. So he limited. Huh. And every once in a while, I have to go back to the basics. That's one of the things he would say, A, B, C. And that, so that is your, that is, that is your foundational palette that you start off with mm -hmm. when you're working on something. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like when I look at his work mm -hmm. and, and when I look at yours, but and maybe I'm not looking closely enough, um, the, the, he started and used very um, uh, broad brushes. So is are, when you're laying down paint, do you put down a lot of paint, or are you with a small brush going? I have gone through lots of different phases. Yeah. And his looked almost like a watercolor wash on his when he first started out. And so, he, I mean, he was using, he was thinning out the paint with a lot of turpentine kind of things yeah, and put, letting it drip. Yeah, and it wouldn't be anything huh. at first. But then, of course, you squint down, you see planes of color. Yeah. S instead of planes of value, he'd say, you know, see planes of color. And so, in a way, it helped me skip that, and I would just try to imitate the value in the color and instead of going through, sometimes teachers will say, okay, you do the color thing first, all in these different values. Then you come in and you do the color on top of that. And he would just say, why not just get the right color and value at the same time? Huh. And so I, you know, we, I would be looking. Yeah, you'd say, what's the mother color? Uh, it's basically a green painting. It's basically a blue painting uh, with taupey. Uh, blues and greens in it, mm. or he would set up still lifes, and they would be reds, so a whole bunch of red colors, a whole bunch of blue colors, a whole bunch of yellow, a whole bunch of white and black, and we would paint those different still lifes to help us learn color and the small variations of, of color. 
It seems to me when you work from that method, rather than from a disegno line drawing method, mm-hmm. that you know when you're doing when you're doing a French academic model, mm-hmm. you do all kinds of preparatory work beforehand. Everything's almost defined down to the Nat's eyebrow, and then you add color very last. Mm-hmm. And so you know when a painting is finished because you've you've basically finished it beforehand, and then the color is the last thing. When you start with the color it seems like it comes more and more and more into focus, almost the opposite. You're, you're now yes. coming out from the other way, right? Mm-hmm. So here you've got somebody that you've done this, you've done a certain, for the Certain Women show, you've done a recognizable person, someone that you know personally, and you're starting with color. You're going from, from, from uh, a kind of broad definition of palette and, and planes of color and values. How do you know at, when to stop? When do you stop? And is that something that's changed over your career that you've developed more of an instinct for that? It's never finished. You always look at a painting, I think, and think there's, oh, yeah, I should have done little bit more there I I still look at paintings and do that the particular painting I painted this time Mm -hmm. was painted over an old painting which is sometimes my most favorite thing to do because you have more interesting textures and things interesting and it's almost like the painting underneath uh, brings a different dimension to the new painting and so some of my most favorite paintings were over old paintings. So if you're never done with it, how do you know to stop? Um, it's time for dinner. <laughs> 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 or you're so sleepy you fall asleep at the easel or, um, you know, a grandchild calls and it's your turn to babysit. <laughs> and you just say, His wife calls. <laughs> you got to move on. You got to move on. Is it mm-hmm. so, but you, you put it in a frame and you put it in the car. Right. So did you did you wake I up did. the next morning and say, OK, I'm ha- I'm I'm OK with this. Um, I'm OK with it. I don't know how other people will be with it, because I think that's one reason I haven't sent a picture into you yet. Hmm. You called for pictures and I just said, for some reason, I can't do that with this one. Your your husband is an artist as well. Mm-hmm. And um, do you two talk about each other's work? Or do oh, you, yes. do you it's, so you do. So he comes in to hear and sees your work and you go in and see his work. Yeah, he, we are very different in the way that we approach it. Uh-huh. And uh, so when I went to Sergei the first couple of years, I could see what I was trying to do, but he could not. No. And, um, but he, he knew that made me happy, so he was supportive. But one day, I remember painting this painting, and I was excited about it. I loved it. And he came in, and he said, looks like a second grader did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said that to him, too, not in those words, but we're very hard. So there's no, you guys didn't hold back punches oh, from no. one another. But sometimes I just see the hand, don't say anything. You know, we learned how to do that, too. Don't say anything, but he's he listens more to me. He's kinder with critique, hmm. with my harsh critiques than I am with his. I'm too defensive about mine, so I'm not humble enough or teachable enough. But anyway, yeah. So I said, you just wait. I'm going to sell this painting for $4,000. He goes, well, good luck. And uh, he he left. But what we have found as two artists, he has different eyes than me. And so when we both like it, there's a bigger audience that it um, 
is pleasing to. So we're running we're running out of time, but I want to end on a I want to ask you about one last subject, which is you've been um, not only a prolific maker of art, but you've been one of these people who has helped create organizations that support other artists. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is something that in this podcast I've I've uh, it's it's one of my violins that I keep playing. It's the idea that um, that that our culture is still gaining um, a, a, a marketplace. It's 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 taking time. We're not quite to the level of where the artists are as as collectors. And I I'm interested. You help found the Inspirational Art Association. You help found um, and they they meet. Uh, um, every is it every conference or is it once a year? It's every conference, uh, general conference for the church at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. They have a show. They give out Christmas awards, time. and they become uh, Christmas time, and they become a, a, a fairly large and very supportive organization. Um, the ACA is another one. The ACA, which, Alliance of Covenant Artists. Alliance Covenant Artists, and. and and it makes and one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if, if there are any statistics, and I'm not looking for statistics, is do you f how do you feel like things have changed from the foundation of those organizations to now the environment that we're in? When you look at artists and collectors, are we is the culture deepening, broadening? Is it getting worse? <laughs> I, I think it's getting more decorative, but I, I love it. I mean, when I went to the Springville show, it was like kind of refreshing. What do you mean by decorative? That's an interesting word to use. Um, well, we're studying anatomy with uh, all these uh, past artists. You know, we're, we're doing everything to be uh, more realistic, so to speak. But now we're kind of shifting, and I think it's because of our handhelds. It's like we like simplicity around us huh. because of the calming maybe that it brings because of all of this intense phone <laughs> interaction that we've got going on. Huh. And so I think people seek more peace, uh, more simple uh, variations of art. Huh. Uh, that's just my that's interesting. opinion. And I, I interrupted your thought of going to Springville, and you're talking about the Springville Spirituality and Religious Show or the Salon or both? Just, uh, let's see, the the last show that I went there, I think it was uh, just the Salon that I attended, but it, it was wonderful, and I enjoyed it, but at the same time I'm thinking, oh, you know, that I could only count maybe one, two still lifes, and that's something I like to do. Right. And so I was surprised, but people, I was a little shocking to my friends when I came with all this color. I was more on the edge. Right. But now some other things are more on the edge, and I think it's supposed to be that, not just for attention's sake, hmm. but like you say, maybe the culture demands different things. Now, you've been doing this for a while. You've made a career of it. Which you could, you know, argue is, I don't think you could just argue. I think it's, it is clearly a huge accomplishment to have done that. Um, and, and, and I, um, I wonder what advice you would give to a younger you, um, as, as you're looking back. I am seeing younger me's. Yes. And I just see their passion. And sometimes I want to say, it's okay that you don't win this prize or you don't do that because... The joy that you really get the most peace and comfort out of 
is bringing joy to others. Hmm. Hmm. And it's not winning the prize. <laughs> well, it's been such a gift to sit down and talk with you. Thank you for having a conversation with us about your work. And I could have spent so much more time talking to you, too. <laughs> I would like to thank Anne-Marie Oborn for joining us. You can see more of her work on her website, anneoborn.com. That's spelled A-N-N-E-O-B-O-R-N.com. This episode is part of a series of interviews we are doing to promote the Certain Women Art Show, an invitational featuring the work of 90 Latter-day Saint women artists. For more information, you can visit certainwomenartshow.com. And if I'm saying this all too quickly, you can visit zineartsociety.org under the podcast tab where it is all written down together with archives of past interviews. Thank you for listening.